Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens and sitting across the broadcast desk from me in the studios of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who might be listening to the program this evening. Thank you so much for allowing us to be in your home. And we are not only thankful that you are listening, but we are thankful that you are going to interact with us on the program tonight. We're not just here to hear your questions. Maybe you have a suggested topic that you would like us to discuss on a future episode of That's Truth. We welcome and covet your input so that we can make this program as practical as possible as we go forward in the future. And the best episodes or the best way to be practical is to discuss topics that are being discussed in your personal life. Maybe over the dinner table, maybe across your desk at work, maybe someone at church in Sunday school brought up a question and you feel there's maybe more, a better way to answer the question from the Bible. We would love to answer your questions from a biblical worldview. Pastor, the first question that we have for you tonight comes from a listener. How many times should we be baptized? Well, biblically, the answer to that question is that uh, both by uh, biblical teaching and also by biblical practice, a person should only be baptized once. But there are two caveats that need to be considered uh, that can affect uh, that matter. One is... It, was the person really saved when they got baptized? No, only saved people should be baptized. So the question would be, if the person is saved and uh, they get baptized, well, they biblically um, should only be baptized once. The second caveat is this, were they baptized in the biblical model of baptism? And that is, uh, were they immersed? Um, we only have one incident in the scriptures where a person was rebaptized, and that's in... Um, Acts chapter 19, where Paul went to Ephesus and met some disciples who were followers of John the Baptist. And he asked them if they had received the Spirit. And they said no. And then he asked them, were you baptized? And they said, yeah, we baptized in uh, John's baptism, the baptism of repentance. And Paul said, uh, but have you not been baptized basically in the name of Christ? And uh, when they heard about the fact that Christian baptism is not John's baptism. John's baptism was an indication to people that they were repenting of their sins. Christian baptism is the identification with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And Paul rebaptized those people even though they were disciples. So um, if a person is truly saved, he should be baptized once. Uh, 
if he was baptized and he was not biblically baptized, and we would consider immersion the proper method or mode of baptism, um, then that person should be rebaptized. We as a church, we see people into our church if they were coming from if they're coming from other churches where they were saved, where they're already saved and they were baptized. We do not rebaptize people. However, if we were told that a person was sprinkled. Uh, um, or, or uh, when he was a child, or whatever, uh, that is not true believers' baptism. Because true believers' baptism is baptism of people who understand the Christian gospel, respond to the gospel, repent, put faith in Jesus Christ, and are saved. Then they're baptized. But the idea that when you're a baby, you're sprinkled, and therefore you're baptized, that is ludicrous. That's not mentioned any time in the Scripture. It's just a practice that. Uh, has unfortunately become a standard normal procedure within certain churches, but we would not uh, at all endorse that kind of a baptism. I would say one other thing. I, I know that, uh, and I don't want to seem as though I'm being disrespectful or targeting one particular group all the time. I do know that there are churches that if they believe that you can be saved and lost, you could be saved today and, and maybe you backslid and therefore you're lost and therefore you've got to get saved again. It's not uncommon to be baptized five and six times, for example, within the Seventh-day Adventist Church. If you were saved and then you went back and then you came back, you've got to be rebaptized. That is not biblical, to be very honest with you. If if a person is truly saved, he's saved once and for all. He may go away from the Lord, but he returns and these, the, the, the salvation is not broken, but the fellowship with God is broken. That needs to be restored. So to answer the question definitively, a saved person should only be baptized once. And uh, the only two conditions that might uh, might cause some concern there is if the person was not saved and he got baptized and now he got saved, he should be baptized. And the other thing is if he was not baptized biblically, we would recommend that that person be baptized by immersion. I hope that answers the question for the uh, the person who asked it. I'm so grateful they did ask the question, and I hope this helpful how we've responded to it. Does salvation, is it dependent at all on my baptism? No, the, the Bible is very, very clear on this. You know, if salvation was uh, dependent on baptism, the Apostle Paul, uh, he is actually thanking God he did not baptize people. You find that in Corinthians. He said, I thank God I only baptized Two families, they didn't baptize any more of you. Now, can you imagine or conceive of the Apostle Paul, who has been evangelizing, preaching, and calling men to faith in Christ, if he really believed that baptism was a means of salvation, why would he in any way uh, refuse to baptize? Uh, the other thing is, all people are saved one way. You're saved by faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Nobody is saved. The people in the Old Testament were saved by looking towards the Messiah coming. We are saved by looking back at the fact that the Messiah has come. We've got to put our faith and trust in Christ. If everybody is saved the same way, um, for example, a, a person who is, like, take the thief on the cross, was he saved or not? Was he baptized? He was never baptized, but he was saved. Jesus said, today shall thou be with me in paradise. Take a person who uh, repents on their, uh, their sickbed. Do we, what do we do? We, you, you know, he's sick, we're going to get a tub of water and baptize him, wh- whatever it is. Take a person who is terminally ill that comes to professional faith and maybe lives for several years. Uh, what do we do in a case like that? Uh, they're not able to, to handle the, the baptism. So, But I think this has happened because uh, people use certain verses of Scripture 
uh, there's one in Acts, sorry, in I think it's Mark 16, and there's another one in uh, the book of Acts as well that they use. But again, if that is properly interpreted and understand the language and use the grammar, all of that can be clarified and the biblical answer to those questions. But there are some things in the King James Version, for example, because of where it's worded. This is not trying to disparage the King James Version by any means, but the fact is that it is not... Um, a literal translation, and you've got to bear that in mind when you're having issues. So if you have an issue that seems to be misleading, it's always right and proper, whether it be the King James, or the New American Standard, New English Version, whatever it is, to go back to the original Greek, study the grammar, study the, the syntax, etc. And a lot of times if that is done, clarity comes and it, it clears it up. But it's just that in, in uh, translating, sometimes the translation is not as, as, as clear as it should be. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question that has just come in. Good night. This question is addressed to That's Truth. If we are Abraham's seed, joint heir with Jesus, and heirs according to the promise, isn't that grounds to keep the Sabbath? Please don't dismiss me. I really want to know. We Weren't we really grafted into the blood of Jesus, blood by, of Jesus? Yeah, we, nobody disputes that. And by the way, when I said that we're the seed of Abraham, we mean that we are the seed of Abraham by faith, because not because we're circumcised or because we follow the law, but because just like Abraham came to uh, Christ. Remember it says, Abraham believed God and was counted on it no righteousness. Paul quotes that in the book of Romans as the means of Abraham's salvation. So Abraham, by faith, he's called the father of the faithful. He's called the father of the faith. So we, like Abraham, have become part of the new covenant. And that new covenant is a covenant of grace where we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with a covenant that relates to the law. I would suggest to the person that one of the greatest passages you can read on this matter is Romans chapter 7 and a study 2 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul makes it very, very clear that the believer, there are two covenants, the new covenant and the old covenant. And he, he draws a contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. And he points out very, very clearly that we are no longer under the old covenant, we are under the new covenant of grace. Under the old covenant economy, there was a particular day that was identified, and that was the Sabbath that has to do with uh, Israel's coming out of Egypt and the re- redemption of Israel. Now, remember, that's the old creation, and it was also a symbol of the old creation. Uh, but we're now a new creation in Christ, and it's only right and proper that we have an, an, another day that would honor this new creation that we are in Christ, and that is the Sunday where we uh, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, and then the other thing that I would say to the person, if you still have doubts about that, go to Colossians. Paul makes it very, very clear that the Sabbath was a shadow of things to come. Christ was his substance. It all pointed that we would have rest in Christ. Uh, so it has fulfilled its purpose in terms of the fulfillment of the, the type that was there under the Old Testament economy where the Sabbath was used that was a rest that God would one day offer because that's what the word Sabbath means. So there was a day of rest pointing to an eternal rest that we would have in Christ. Now that Christ has come and we find rest in Him, the, the, the shadow no longer uh, needs to be in place. The substance is there. And uh, that is why we observe. And then uh, we did a program on this as well. I might say to people, if you check the church in the first century, uh, I can give you quote after quote where the believers met on the first of the week to celebrate the Lord's resurrection. So this was a practice going on in the early church. The other thing that we point out about the first of the week is that every time Christ met the disciples, 
after his death is on the first day of the week. You check it out. He appeared about seven times, and every time he's on the first day of the week. The other thing is that the Holy Spirit, the Pentecost, was on the first day of the week. And then when Paul was preaching to uh, the believers in Ephesus, when uh, one of them fell down and, and broke his neck, basically, and, probably, and Paul resurrected and raised him from the dead, it was on the first day of the week that they met. And then Paul tells them in Corinthians, on the first day of the week, collect the offering. So clearly, uh, when you look at the New Testament practice and the first century believers, they all uh, celebrated uh, the Lord's Day, which is the Resurrection Day, uh, as the day to worship. One other thing in uh, Revelation chapter one, where it says that John was in, in, in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, that is not the day of the Lord. Uh, as a matter of fact, you could check the New Testament. You see, there's a uh, the Greek for the day of the Lord is not the same as the as, as used there. The only twice that word is used in the Lord's Supper, the Lordian Supper, and the Lordian's Day. So the two don't relate to Christ and not really to the... People say, well, he's talking about the day of the Lord when the Lord is... That's not what he's talking about because there's a, um, you can find that expression, the day of the Lord, many times in the New Testament and the Old Testament. But you find that this particular expression, the Lord's Day and the Lord's Supper, is always uh, a special word that is used, Lordian, and Lordian Day, Lordian Supper. So all of this indicates to us that this is the proper thing uh, to do. However, I would say this finally. Paul said, let every man be fully persuaded in his mind concerning what particular day he wants to worship. So that's why I don't have any problem, for example. Uh, there are, I think there's a church here called the Church of God of uh, Seventh-day Church of God. They worship on Saturday because they feel they're led to worship on Saturday. Uh, I can't condemn them if they feel that that's the proper day to worship. But for me, I am very convinced and persuaded that this is the proper day on which we should worship because it celebrates the new creation and it celebrates the resurrection of Christ. And uh, just that we have an an, an old day in the old covenant called the Sabbath, we have a new day in the new covenant uh, um, called the and the Lord's Day. And it's interesting also, they said, uh, when the Lord resurrected Christ in the book of Psalms, this is the day the Lord uh, have made, basically, a reference there would seem to be an indication as well that this all refers to the first day of the week. You're listening to That's Truth. It's a live interactive call-in program here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse every Tuesday evening. If you have a question and you'd like to call and be put live on the air, you can call 268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text, you can send it to 268-782-1454. Let me say one other thing to the person who has asked the question. I would suggest to you that you listen to our series on Romans. I'm dealing with Romans chapter 7 now. And that is one of the great passages of Scripture where Paul explains very uh, meticulously in, in great detail how the believer was brought from under the law. And it's not dealing there with the ceremonial law. If you check down the passage, he's saying uh, he would not have known uh, not to covet except the law, uh, the law had said. And the only place you find that you should not covet is in Exodus chapter 20, with regard to the Ten Commandments. But he explains that the believer in dying uh, with Christ, in his union with Christ at his conversion by the baptismal work of the Holy Spirit, he is no longer under the 
rule of the law and the reign of the law. He's now under the reign of Christ. And rather than look to the law, he now looks to Christ. And uh, that is a great passage. I recommend that you listen to the series. And I think it would give a great enlightenment on how God worked out um, the details of how this was done. And it was done through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and our identity with Christ when we put our faith and trust in him. Pastor, do you believe that the Bible has the answers for all of life's questions? I, I don't, I don't uh, in any way um, have any doubts about this matter. Uh, the, Peter says God has given to us all that pertains to life and godliness. So whatever we need to live a godly life and whatever we need to live a life that is successful and victorious, the Bible provides that, that answer. What I would say to people that life might seem more complex and more complicated, but essentially there are three main areas of every problem we have. There's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All of our uh, problems fall into those three different areas. And therefore, there's a biblical uh, answer to all of those three different areas. So I know that there's answers in the Bible. Sometimes it requires you to, to search. You might not find it in a particular verse, but you look at a biblical principle that's stated. And uh, this book is God's wisdom condensed. Uh, it's the treasure of wisdom is given to us. And uh, uh, it's inconceivable that God would uh, place humanity on planet Earth and not give him a guidebook to help him uh, to meander his way through the, the, the kind of problems we'll face in life. So there is a biblical answer, and I think that there's so many different books that are available as well. People are just not aware of what is available when people talk about contradictions and people talk about um, things that are uh, seem to be um, contrary. Uh, but there are biblical answers. There are many, many good godly men who've written extensively on these subjects. It's just that people are not aware of it. And therefore, and by the way, a lot of people are arguing against Christianity and the Bible. They are living in an archaic of the dinosaurs because they're not becoming enlightened as to what has happened afterwards. Uh, and especially if they're reading the old German books, the old German uh, critics who brought such um, objections to Christianity, the Bible, all of those have been answered. Uh, the problem is that people are not aware that the answers have been, they have been refuted, and therefore they go on regurgitating the same old stuff again and again. They need to mature and become enlightened with the, the new uh, discoveries that we made that put to rest all of those uh, foolish objections to the Bible. Here's a question that comes from a listener. Pastor, can you please give a biblical perspective to this message? This week, the U.S. Supreme Court will begin to decide whether a nine-year-old can abort a fetus resulting from rape by a dad or brother. This is the example of Christofascists are using. They say that preteen pregnancies are health and safe. If this is religion, then religion be damned. Pastor, what should be our biblical worldview? Obviously, that's a difficult situation. It's a difficult situation, but we have to uh, ask ourselves several questions. We're living in a fallen world, and there are times when you're going to have atrocious acts committed against the innocent, like a father taking advantage of a child. But again, we, uh, in despite of all of that, we have a higher law and higher principles to guide us in these matters. The, the big question is this, uh, who gives life? That's the big question. When does life begin? And who has the right to take life, and uh, et cetera? And when you come to that answer, the, the, the question is that abortion is murder. There's no, no way about it, about that. I charge the American Congress and all of them that are in the Congress who 
have uh, came up with a recent law where a mother up to nine years old can abort a child. I charge all of them with premeditated murder. I make no apology about that. I think that they are going to be held accountable. And I quite think, uh, my judgment is this, I think politicians who have been in politics for a number of years have lost a conscience. They have done so much evil. They have uh, done so much corruption and all that to happen that they no longer have a conscience. They're tin men, like Dorothy's uh, uh, story, um, Wizard of Oz, basically. They have no heart because that, that has all been complete. So it's very, very difficult. But in this case, um, there are options. Nobody is, is saying that what is done was right. Uh, nobody's endorsing this kind of a lifestyle. But one has to ask the question, are you killing a human being when you are born? A person, and the Bible answers, yes. Do you have a right to take a person's life even though they're not responsible for what has happened to cause them to be born? When you begin to look at it from that angle, Two wrongs don't make a right, and one, two evils don't make something correct. You don't, you don't correct an evil by doing evil again. We must be guided by God's word. We have no other alternative to be governed by God's word. If we don't have governed by God's word, we go down a track where uh, we we lose what morality is. We have no standard of what is right and wrong, and that leads to a dead end and a dark end that eventually will be detrimental to human survival. Uh, we need to respect human life, and in spite of the painful reality that this is what has happened, uh, I um, I am against any form of abortion except it involves the endangerment of the life of the individual. For example, if a mom, a doctor, have to make a choice between a mother and a child, and it's very very clear that, they, that one of them is going to die, the child uh, life should be forfeited. The mother uh, say because the mother can reproduce another child, and there's a biblical example of that in the Bible. By the way, if a man was a woman is pregnant and. Uh, uh, two people are fighting and they kill the wife it was life for life but if the child was killed there had to be a payment clearly the adult life is more valuable in, in, in terms of um, you know I don't want to say more valuable but clearly in that case where judgment has to be made one or the other the mother's life is, is, is far more supreme so I would I would say that and if the child's life is endangered in this case I think it should be an abortion that's the only condition if the life is endangered and they feel that way but I don't think that um, doctors make a Hippocratic oath and their job is to preserve life and that's what they're supposed to do. But today they are killing life. And not only that, they're actually advocating uh, euthanasia, killing old people, all of that. They've gone against the Hippocratic Oath. And it's about time we call them back to the biblical principle that life is sacrosanct. And uh, we have to let God guide us in these matters. Remember that we're all going to stand before God in some day and give an account. And we know that a lot of things happen to us that hurt us. And we're often tempted to tick-tack and, and, and think. But the, the thing is, to, our, our, our purpose is to follow God's will, follow God's principles, leave matters that um, we should take in our own hands. And God, he said, vengeance is mine. And he tells us uh, clearly that we should not in any way uh, return evil for evil. That requires great grace. It requires great power. But it also requires great mercy and great favor. And our purpose here, down here, is to please God and to honor God, to glorify God. Is not to get revenge. Is not to about our own selves. Is how we can glorify God on planet Earth. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is seven fifty-four. The name of the program is That's Truth. It is an interactive program, and we are looking forward to your interaction for the next hour and four minutes. 
You can call and be put live on the air, 268-462-7420. The phone line is open and available and awaiting your call. If you'd rather not speak live on the air, but you still have a question, you can send a WhatsApp or text message to 268-782-1454. Or you can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and you can comment your question right there on your device. Now, I want to make another, not interject here, but I want to say that when you go down the slippery slope of abortion, eventually it leads to the abortion of people who have genetic problems, uh, just like the, the Nazis did to get rid of all the people who had any kind of medical condition, uh, maniacs, uh, people who got any kind of uh, physical fault, etc. And that's where it eventually leads. So I'm going to play devil's advocate sure. here. Mm-hmm. Would it not be better to have a healthy society? Your health care costs are going to be lower if that's the base on which you live, if the base on which you live is to honor God and respect God's law and God's principles, well, that's a different story altogether. And uh, remember that the, the, the God is a God of love and must always show compassion. Uh, you know, if we begin to reason that way, do we get rid of the idiots? Do we get rid of the, the mad people? Do we get rid of children who are born with some kind of deformity? Maybe they they don't have a hand. Or I mean, what, what do we do in a case like that? I've seen people born without feet. I've seen people born without hands. But they're, and, and the, the amazing thing about Americans, if I might say this, they're very optimistic. These people go on and make something of their lives. They don't let their uh, uh, handicap be an impediment to their progress. They, some of them become lecturers, some of them, I mean, become public speakers. And I've seen some of them on stage, not even half a man, quite frankly, just got a torso, uh, got a mouth. But I mean, when you listen to the inspiration that flows from that person's mouth, you, you can't leave saying, but why am I complaining, quite frankly? I, I think that um, in an imperfect world, we got to understand that we don't try to, in any way, um, we can't go against what God teaches. That's the point I'm making here. We're either Christians following God's word, guided by God's principles, or we are taking matters into our own hands and living by our own wits and our own wisdom. And when we do that, we always go down a trail that leads to atrocities that are committed in the name of doing good. And we've got to be very careful about that. Last week, Pastor, there was a listener that asked you to expound on Nehemiah chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 9, specifically in the area of prayer, and you said you wanted to come back to it. Yeah, I I, I, knew the, I know the person. He's from Matthew's uh, area, and uh, I think he came to the office this week, but I wasn't there, to be honest with you, and I wasn't too sure exactly what uh, they really wanted, but I think they were concerned about the fact that since we're talking about prayer, to uh, let people see the model of how prayers to be done and how it was done in the Old Testament. So I just thought I would need to spend some time rather than just bypassing, just taking the time to send in the requests, and I just want to spend some time on it. So in Matthew chapter, uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, uh, first of all, the, the very subject of this chapter is a prayer of a confession to God where he is asking God to forgive Israel their sins and their stubbornness and the rebellion. And they're crying to God for help, for mercy and forgiveness and for restoration. That's the gist of the the hope. It's a prayer of confession and a prayer of request that God offered forgiveness and restoration. And the chapter itself is divided into two parts. Verses 1 to 6, you've got the preamble to the prayer. And verses 6 to 37, you have the prayer itself. In the preamble to the prayer, 
there are six things. First of all, there's a solemn assembly. Secondly, there's a separation of the people from the pagans around them. Thirdly, this sin is confessed. Uh, fourth, scripture is read. And then number five, there's a solemn cry that goes up to the Levites to God. And then the people stand before the Lord and praise Him and bless Him. So that's the preamble to the prayer itself. Then the, we got the prayer that begins in verse number six and verse number 37. And uh, you'll find that throughout this prayer, two things happen. Three things happen. First of all, he adores God with adoration. He begins with that. Secondly, he arraigns Israel before God, uh, itemizing the way in which Israel has offended God and gone away from God. Thirdly, he talks about God's action and attitude towards Israel, that in spite of all of this, God showed favor and kindness and thoughtfulness. And then throughout the prayer, three different times, he talks about the he arraigns Israel three different times in the prayer. Three different times he talks about God's action and God's attitude towards Israel. So it's a prayer that begins with adoration. I want to point out uh, in verses six to fifteen of that prayer, two things when he's adoring God. First of all, he adores God for his greatness. And secondly, he adored God for his goodness towards Israel. In talking about God's uh, greatness, he says that God is the Lord alone. Secondly, he said that God is the creator. Thirdly, he said that God is the preserver. And fourthly, God is the object of all angelic worship in heaven. Uh, if you look at verse, read, read verse number six to verse, yeah, read verse number six. Nehemiah 9, 6 says, Thou, even thou art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein. And thou hast preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. Yeah, so he's, he's, he's talking about the greatness of God. He's great because he's a Lord, and Lord alone. He's an exclusive God. Number two, he's great because he's the creator of things in heaven, things in earth, of everything, basically. And number three, he is great because he preserves what he has created. In other words, it's not just natural law that, that keeps this system going. God preserves what he has done. And then number four, he said, he is the object of angelic worship. That's the greatness of God. So he's adoring God by, first of all, focusing on God. And I would say to people this, in every prayer in the Old Testament, and when we study the Lord's Prayer, what we call the Believer's Prayer, the first thing that God wants to do is get our frame of mind of who we're addressing, who's this person we're addressing. We're not right to prayer unless we fully comprehend who we're praying to, His greatness, His glory. And uh, I think that's the first thing you'll discover in all of these prayers. We always think about God first. Who is this one? How great is he? All right. Secondly, uh, in this prayer, you got the, the he, he adores God for his goodness towards Israel. And that begins in verse 7 to 15. And you'll discover in, in that particular passage, Nathan, he mentions nine things that God has done for Israel in terms of being good to Israel. In verse number 1, if you read that, you'll find he said he chose Abraham. Uh, verse 7, Thou art the Lord, the God who didst choose Abraham. And then he also brought him out of the Chaldees. That's the second thing. The third thing is he changed Abraham's name. The mm -hmm. fourth thing is that he made a covenant with Abraham. And that covenant was to give, is, give Abraham the land and give Abraham seed the land. And God fulfilled that covenant. In verse 9 to 11, he said that God delivered them from Egypt. He goes back and he recites the history how God delivered them from Egypt and how he destroyed the armies of Egypt in the Red Sea. You remember, favor pursued it. And then in verse number 12, he said he led them um, 
on the journey to Canaan, what did he do? He, he sent a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He guided Israel. And then in verse 13 and 14, he gave them his laws and his statutes and his ordinance at, at, at Mount Sinai. So he gave them instructions as to how to live and gave them biblical principles. And then in verse number 15, he provided for them on the journey. He, he gave them water out of the rock. And the Bible says he gave them manna. And of course, the manna lasted for 40 years. And then number uh, in, in verse number 15, he said, he promised them that they would possess the land. So when you look at the goodness of God, he chose Abraham, he called Abraham, he made a covenant with Abraham, he cared for Israel, and he completely fulfilled all of his promises. So the first part of the prayer, first 15 verses, it is all about adoring God for his greatness and adoring God for his goodness. Having done that, the second part of the prayer begins in verse 16 and 17, where he arraigns Israel before God. Uh, and when I say arraigns, he charges them with... Um, with rebellion, and he mentions six things that they did uh, uh, against God. He's, uh, if you read uh, verse number, verse number seventeen. Seventeen. Yeah. And sixteen. Speak sixteen. Okay, sixteen. But they and our fathers dealt proudly and hardened their necks and hearkened not to thy commandments and refused to obey. Neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them, but hardened their necks, and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. But thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious okay. and merciful. So notice the arraignment there, and there's six charges that he brings against them. They acted presumptuously, they hardened their necks, that is their stubbornness, they refused to heed the word, they refused to obey God, they devalued God's wonders, they saw the wonders, but yet it meant nothing to them, and they rebelled against God, saying, let's, uh, captains, let's go back to Egypt. So he brought six charges against them. Uh, and then the, the, the third part of this, uh, the, the prayer is verses 17 to 25, where he talks about God's attitude towards Israel. And it's a fascinating section, if you want to just uh, go down with um, verse number 7, he said he did not forsake them. Uh, then he said he was willing to forgive them. He was gracious. He was merciful. He was slow to anger. He showed kindness. And even when they committed idolatry in the, in the golden calf, he did not even forsake them. And then in verse number 19, he said he guided them. Verse 20, he instructed them. Uh, verse 20b, he provided for them. Uh, verse number uh, 21, he sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness. And he said they didn't lack anything. Their clothes did lasted and their feet did not swell. And then in verse 22, he gave them kingdom and nations. In other words, he allowed them to conquer the nations when they were going into Israel. So they inherited property that they didn't even own because those nations, they took over. The, the, and then he said he brought them into the promised land in verse 23. And then in verse 24, he subdued the enemies and he gave them wealth, possessions of land, goods, and material. Nine different things, basically, he, he said that God uh, in his attitude. But the key thing here, Nathan, is about God's character. He says in verse number 15, uh, verse number 17 and 18, uh, he forgave, he was gracious, he was merciful, he was slow to anger, he showed kindness, and uh, he was um, long-suffering with them. That's God's character. And then he talked about God's care, and he, he mentioned those ways. He guided them, he instructed them, he provided for them, he sustained them, uh, he gave them a kingdom, he increased their, their number, he brought them out of, uh, he brought them into the promised land, uh, etc., so that is the third thing that he, he mentions. You've got the adoration, the arraignment of Israel, uh, the nation, and then you've got God's attitude and God's towards action towards them in his character and his care of Israel. And then 
the other thing that you'll find after after this is the second arraignment that you'll find uh, uh, as, as mentioned in verse number uh, verse number 26 he arraigns Israel again and if you read just verse number 26 you'll see nevertheless they were disobedient and rebelled against thee and cast thy law behind their backs, and slew thy prophets, which testified against them, to turn them to thee, and were wrought great, and they wrought great provocations. Yes, yeah, so they were disobedient, they rebelled, they despised God's law, they slew the prophets, they provoked God to great anger repeatedly. That's the arraignment again. So you'll find that three different times, you'll find that he starts praising God, he talks about God's attitude, and he, he, so you find that he, he kind of alternates between arraigning them and sure. Look at God's attitude again and, and God's actions towards Israel in verse 27. Therefore thou deliverest them into the hand of their enemies, who vexed them, and in the time of their trouble, when they cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven, and according to thy manifold mercies, thou gavest them saviors who saved them out of the hand of their enemies. So again, uh, God's attitude, number one, was that he, he uh, re- re- brought retribution. He delivered into the, in the, But when they cried unto him for help, what did he do? He sent deliverers, judges, saviors to bring them out. And he did this many times, repeatedly. So, and, and by that leads to the, he's thinking about the book of Judges, with this cycle, where Israel would uh, sin against God, God would bring the enemies against them, Israel repent, God would restore them. And you got about seven, six, I think it's seven different cycles that this happened again and again and again. They keep repeating the same. But every time, God chastened them, and they cried to God. God brought someone to deliver them because he was merciful. And that's the And then in, in verse number 28 to 29, you've got the third arraignment again. If you read that passage, verse 28 and 29. But after they had rest, they did evil again before thee. Therefore leftest thou them in the hand of their enemies, so they had the dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven, and many times didst thou deliver them according to their mercies, verse 29 says, and testifiedest against them, that thou mightest bring them again unto thy law. Yet they dwelt, they dealt proudly, and hearkened not unto thy commandments, but sinned against thy commandments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. And withdrew the shoulder and hardened their neck and <coughs> would not hear. One of the most graphic illustrations of that, their, their rebellion and their stubbornness. You know, you see somebody going wrong, you tap them on the shoulder. Mm-hmm. And they turn around and say, well, you touched me before. That's exactly the language that's used here. They mm-hmm. turn their shoulder against God. as though God is warning them and pleading with them. It's like a friend touching you and you're going the wrong way. And the Bible said they just throw back their shoulder. It's talking about Israel's continuous, repeated rebellion again and again and again. So you've got this adoration of God. You've got this arraignment uh, again, and, and then you've got God's attitude and action. It, the, the whole the whole prayer is sandwiched. These are the two things keep repeating itself again and again. For example, look at um, verse 20. Uh, you just read verse what? Verse 29. 29. Look at verse number 30 and 31, God's attitude again and his actions towards Israel. Yet many years didst thou forbear them, and testifiedest against them by thy spirit in thy prophets. Yet would they not give ear. Therefore gavest thou them into the hand of the people of the lands. 
Verse 31, Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for thou art a gracious and merciful God. I mean, you, you can't read this passage to understand that that had to be a frame of mind that Nehemiah had to be in, that this God is a gracious, compassionate, merciful God who is forbearing. And as he approached God, he knows that the people are in, in that time are in difficult times, building of the wall, and they've got all these objections and all these enemies. And he's, he's appealing for God to intervene and to help them. And the basis of that is God's character. Uh, and uh, and God's care for Israel, and He knows that this is a merciful God. And then the final part of the um, the prayer is found where He appeals to God in verse number thirty-two. Verse number thirty-two. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the terrible God, who keepest covenant and mercy, let not all the trouble seem little before Thee that hath come upon us, on our kings, on our princes, and on our priests, and on our prophets, and on our fathers, and on all thy people, since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day. Yeah, so that that is God's attitude, and now he's appealing to God. And notice the, again, he goes back to the character of God. Number one, your personal God, you're our God. You're not some absentee God somewhere, you're all God. Number two, you're great, you're, you're mighty dreadful, you're terrible. You're terrible in the sense that you're powerful and when you act in judgment, you can be very, very severe. You're faithful, you keep your covenant, you're merciful God. He goes back to the character of God, the attributes of God because he's appealing to God and um, then he makes his petitions before God and he said, God, you know what? Don't underestimate the plight that we're in. Uh, He affirms that you're just in dealing with us. Uh, how you've dealt with us. He admits Israel's sin. The people acted wickedly. The leaders, the kings, the princes, etc., did not obey you. Then he acknowledged the plight that they were in. He said that they were in bondage and great distress. And finally, he announces that there is going to be a new commitment of a new covenant uh, between God and them in verse 38. Can you read verse 38? And because of all of this, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes... Levites and priests seal onto it. Yeah, so they're now at the place where they're now going to renew their vows and recommit themselves in a new covenant with the Lord. That is, in essence, the prayer. But I think what the person probably wanted us to point out is that you always start with God first. Get your mind in the frame of mind of who are you talking to? What is he like? Right. That is the frame of mind you have to go into prayer. On the basis of who you see God to be, then you make your petitions. And of course, there had to be the element of confession, where we admit that what we're doing is wrong. And I notice that uh, it's not a vague generalities when he says that we have sinned. He itemizes about eight different sins that Israel committed. We've got to be very specific. Well, God forgive my sin, but what sin? Uh, well, God forgive me for my lying. Forgive me for being mean or, 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 or angry when I should not be. Uh, not just coming to God and saying, God forgive me for my sin. What does that mean? In every case, he itemizes in very, very detail what Israel did. And I think when it comes to prayer and the element of confession, we need to be more thoughtful of what we are confessing to God because it is very difficult to be repeating the same thing again and again without feeling embarrassment. Uh, to anybody, yeah, quite yeah. frankly. And that's why I think it's needful for us to be specific when we're asking God to forgive us, not just, Lord, forgive me for my sins I committed today. 
uh, that is too hasty. That is not uh, any kind of pondering and meditating on what the offense was. And therefore, it never weighs us down with the burdens it should because we have a nonchalant attitude towards what these things. So we're supposed to be specific, but how do I balance that with, I've heard pastors before say, I shouldn't voice my weaknesses so that Satan can use them against me. <laughs> never heard that one yet. But You've never uh, heard that one? Uh, that Satan's uh, listening? Well, I, I would suggest you that there's nothing you could tell him he doesn't know. I okay. mean, he is observing you every single day, Nathan. You don't have to pray to God about a weakness uh, and the devil doesn't know about it before. Believe you me, he knows long before because remember he's been on planet Earth for 6,000 years and he's been observing from the time you were born and he has his, his minions who are part of the process because just like the Bible says every person has a guardian angel, a believer, a child for example, I do believe that you have angelics, I mean evil demonic spirits that are assigned that uh, provides that information. Satan is ubiquitous. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at the same time. That's why he needs these, these, uh, these minute, these uh, false, uh, these, these demonic powers, basically. But uh, I don't think that's the. Uh, I don't think that is something that sh- I wouldn't take that very seriously, to be very honest with you, because you can't go through this prayer and uh, and and have, hold that opinion as well, because it's a very detailed prayer. And similar when you look at Daniel's prayer or the other person, again, they're confessing the specific sins of Israel. And one of the things that strikes you amazingly as you go through this prayer is the element of rebellion and stubbornness uh, of God's people, that we can be so stubborn and so rebellious. I mean, I, the, the picture, I mean, I, I could just imagine that, you know, I see a little child doing wrong, hey, hey, don't do that. And, you know, how they respond. That's the kind of um, graphic language that is used to display the arrogance of Israel and the rebellion of Israel and the and the stubbornness of Israel is something that we need to be very thoughtful about, careful about. Thank you to the individual who asked that question last week from Nehemiah chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 9. As we return to the topic of prayer, it's something that has been discussed here on That's Truth for a couple of weeks. Pastor, you started out the first week by uh, defining what prayer is, and last week you were talking about if there were any hindrances to our prayers. And as we finished out last week's episode, you were talking about if there were any prerequisites to have my prayers answered. Can you pick back up with that thought? Yeah. Uh, Could I do something before I get into that, Nathan? I just wanted to respond to the one about Daniel. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, go ahead. I didn't do Daniel in any great detail. So I just want to um, talk about Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9 because he did give us Jeremiah 9. In Daniel chapter 9... they're just basically a, uh, a summary. Basically, is Daniel's is praying to God, and it gives you God's Daniel's prayer and God's answer to Daniel's prayer. Um, if we analyze the prayer, um, there are several things that we we could see. First of all, uh, we look at the the timing of which provoked Daniel to offer this type of prayer, and uh, you in verse number one. We are told several things. It was in the first year of Darius, the king of the Medes. Now, Darius came to power in 538 B.C. And he reigned for two years until 536 B.C. Uh, Daniel, in this particular passage, is reading through the book of Jeremiah. And he discovers in Jeremiah that the captivity would only last 
for 70 years. So he is aware that the captivity began in 605 BC. It's now uh, 535. If you calculate, there's only three more years before the 70 years ends. So Daniel is aware that the people going back home. So the question is, how are they going to get back home? What are they going to do when they get back home? So Daniel now begins to pray uh, to God also that uh, God is going to fulfill his promise. So it's the reading. And by the way, if you look at um, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. Jeremiah? Yeah. Jeremiah chapter 9. 29, verse 10. 29 and verse 10 yeah. says... Could you, before that, could you yeah. read 25, verse 11 and 12 first? This is where he tells them how long the captive would last. Yeah. Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12 says, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an ast- astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years, and it shall come to pass, when seventy years are accomplished, that I will punish the king of Babylon... And that the nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it perpetual desolation. So there it is, 70 years, you're going into captivity. But a promise was made in uh, Jeremiah 29, 10. And that promise, or that verse says, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you, and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. So you see that? So he's now reading Daniel. I mean, reading Jeremiah. He realizes 70-year captivity. But after 70 years, God is going to bring them back to their homeland. So a man like Daniel, uh, he certainly would be praying about that. I mean, I just, it began 605 B.C. is when the captive began. It completed in 586, but it's now 536, 5, uh, 535. If you check the calculation, you'll find it got two, three more years before the 70 years come to pass. So Daniel decides. And here's the point, Nathan. Daniel's prayer is based on a promise in Scripture. He's asking God on the basis of your promise. He's, uh, what, tell me what's going to happen and how it's going to happen, etc. And that's a, one of the key things about prayer, that coming to God... It involves adoration, of course, but also we come to God and we claim promises that God has established, etc. That's exactly what. So you've got, but, the, yeah. But I can't, I don't, I can't go to my Bible and claim a promise that we're Antigua or the United States or Nigeria or whatever country you are in the world. I can't claim a specific promise as clearly as Daniel was claiming there. So how do I do that? Well, again, it depends on what, what your situation is. For example, take you're going through temptation. Uh, You've got, the, the Lord said in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. So you have a, a, a that matter. And then you've got Corinthians chapter uh, 10, verse 17. They have no temptation taking, but such as common to God. Uh, common to man, but God is faithful, will not subject to temptation, but will with the temptation make a way of escape. So you'll be asking God, where's my way of escape? Mm-hmm. You know, Lord, you've promised you've not, you'll not ever give me more than I can take. That is where you're claiming that, that promise. God has promised, I'll never give you more than you can take. And if you can't handle it, I will give you a way of escape. So that's a promise you can come to God and say, this is too much for me. I need my way of escape. You follow? So it's not just taking a a promise that is made to Israel and applying it to yourself, but there are general promises made in Scripture about the righteous and what God will do. Those are the promises that you look for uh, in in Scripture. So you've got the period of time that is is mentioned in, uh, in verse number one. You look at the promise 
in uh, he's looking at uh, by the way look at uh, Daniel chapter 9 verse 2 in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. See that? He's reading Jeremiah, and he begins to realize, hey, 70 years, and look what time it is. Within two to three years, we are going back home. I wanted the people to know that. And that he started interceding for Israel, etc., uh, etc. Et and then notice in uh, verse 3, he, he, he does some preparation for prayer. He does fasting. He put on sackcloth. He does ashes. A sign of brokenness and earnestness. And sometimes I would suggest to people, uh, we rush into God's presence sometimes and without understanding who we're going before. And there are times, our Lord pointed out, there are certain things that can only be done through prayer and fasting. There are times when we should have some period of fasting in our lives uh, as far as our preparation uh, as far as that. And then <coughs> when we look at his prayer in verse 4 to 19 we got his prayer and I want you to notice several things uh, again this is basically a prayer of confession and seeking forgiveness and restoration but again look at verse number 4 he begins with adoration and I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. Right. Again, uh, notice he began with talking about God's greatness, uh, um, God's dreadfulness, God's faithfulness, his mercy, and uh, he, he keeps his covenant. So he's a covenant keeping. Again, that's the character of God. Uh, that's how you begin again it, you can't look at uh, Nehemiah you began with God thinking about this God and you notice that in both cases they are relating the character of God to their particular needs uh, here it's about the greatness of God the dreadfulness of God the faithfulness of God and his mercy he's appealing to that and then notice in verse 5 to 6 he acknowledges the sins of Israel we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Yeah, the six indictments, if you go to that, that he brings against Israel. So this is the confessional part of prayer. Adoration, then we confess the Lord. And then in verse 7 to 13, uh, he admits in that passage, that uh, in his prayer, that God, in leading them into captivity, uh, because of their sin. Look at verse 7, uh, read from verse number 7. O Lord, righteousness belongs unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces, as at this day, to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and unto all Israel that are near and that are afar off through all the countries whither thou hast driven them because of their trespasses that they have trespassed against thee. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Uh, verse 10. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in the laws which he has set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing 
that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore the curse is poured upon us, and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. Yeah, you notice there that um, he's saying that, all, well, he kind of recites the sins of Israel again, but then he, he talks about all that has happened. Uh, it's happened because of uh, God chasing them because of their sin. And they had four results. Number one, they were in confusion of faith. They were under the curse of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. God had told them, listen, if you don't obey my law, you go against my law, I'm going to scatter you. Uh, among the nations and they did that and then they talk about their calamity and then uh, God's wrath upon them basically then the third part the fourth part of it is his appeal for forgiveness and restoration verse number 15 and right through to 19 and now O Lord our God that hast brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and hath gotten thee renown as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city, Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Verse 17. Now therefore, O God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications, and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. O my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes, and behold our desolations, and the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousness but for thy great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Do not defer not. For thine own sake, O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Yet, uh, in his appeal to forgiveness, uh, first of all, he recalls the deliverance from Egypt. God had delivered them. Then he makes certain requests of God, four requests. Number one, he said, God, return, turn away your anger. In other words, you've chastened us, and I'm pleading for you to uh, halt your anger. Number two, he said, look with Israel with favor. Let your countenance uh, be upon us. Not in anger any longer, but look with favor. Number three, he said, look, uh, he said, act to safeguard your name. We are your people. And if we are in this dilemma and this crisis and this calamity, think of what the heathen is going to say. So for your namesake, see. And then number four, he said, grant forgiveness to your people. So four different requests that I mentioned. And then lastly, uh, the answer is given in verse number 20. God intervenes and notice the answer. And whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplications before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, 
For thou art greatly beloved, therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. Yeah. We don't have time to go through the particular details of the the, um, the answer, but quite fairly, here is you, you've got Daniel praying to God. God answers by sending Gabriel, who gives a panoramic survey of Israel's history, 490 years, and how that would be divided up when the Messiah would come, etc., etc. And also, it points out that there's a coming prince uh, who would make a covenant with Israel for, for seven years, and uh, in the midst of that covenant, he will cease to sacrifice, and um, he will bring about what is called the abomination of desolation, the same thing our Lord referred to in, the, in Matthew chapter 24. And it's talking about the, the peace pact that's going to be signed with Israel during the time of the Antichrist, the seven-year tribulation period. In the midst of that, after three and a half years, he breaks the covenant. Another, a, a, a very important aspect of this, Nathan, is that it is very, very clear that the temple in Israel is going to be rebuilt. Uh, Second Thessalonians said that the Antichrist will stand in the temple claiming that he's God, so we know it's going to be rebuilt. And it hasn't been rebuilt yet. It hasn't been rebuilt yet, but I think you know that all the paraphernalia has been already set aside. The biggest problem why it has not been rebuilt is because the, the Mosque of Omar stands right there where the temple was was formerly held. And it's um, Israel is <coughs> waiting <coughs> the time when she would be able to rebuild the temple. But You've got all the materials uh, already, the um, utensils, etc., etc., and they've actually uh, created models of the parts within the, the temple. There is though people who go to Jerusalem and people who go to Israel can actually go. There's a, um, a a group that are I don't know what they call them, but a temple group who are really trying to prepare for the rebuilding of the temple, and that is already uh, in place. I, th I think the last thing I read about that is that they're looking to get what is called a red heifer and uh, there's some kind of breeding that is being done um, I don't know what it is maybe when we look at the temple we look at that but they're actually setting the stage for the temple to be rebuilt and Daniel uh, is a vindic indication and vindication that this is going to happen because the sacrifice is going to be restored and the Antichrist is going to break the covenant set up his image in the temple, claim that he's God. It's called the abomination of desolation our Lord warns about. All of that is in Daniel. But the thing here is that he begins with adoration. He admits and confesses sin. And then, of course, he appeals to God uh, for mercy and favor. Uh, and God provides an answer. But it all begins with adoration. God first, then we focus on our needs and our problems. But never rushing to God with our needs and our problems before we, first of all, settle in our minds who are we praying to? What is he like? And out of how we conceptualize him, then our petitions are geared in relation to uh, his character. What about in the case where, as you're driving down the road, suddenly you see a large truck coming toward you in your lane and you cry out <coughs> for help from God? Do you have to go through this process? Oh, no, no. I mean, that's an impromptu prayer. You've got that as well. Many, many times you find even in, in Christ's prayer, he just said, Father, I thank you. I mean, there's no long prayer uh, that's involved. As a matter of fact, one of the things, Nathan, you'll discover, if you study the prayers of the Bible, they're all very short. Very, very, very short. But the, the thing about is the frame of mind that is important. It's different between an impromptu prayer where you have an emergency. You don't have time to. But, but I think when you have real intercessory prayer, 
especially when you're dealing with an issue of, as grave as returning home after 70 years in captivity. Think of the logistics of that, the mechanics of that. How is that going to happen? How are we going to get there? Where are the resources going to come? That certainly is a, a matter for a cause of prayer, and that requires not rushing to God's presence and being presumptuous, but thinking carefully, meditating on who He is, and based on His character, appealing to Him to intervene. So, but um, when you study the Lord's Prayer as well, uh, what we call the Believer's Prayer, our Lord gave us a pattern again of when we're going to pray to Him. Uh, and, and this has to do with prayer in the closet. Now, this is not prayer in public or prayer in prompt. This is when you come to your special time of prayer. So I think you'll discover as well that he always uh, points out, even in that prayer, you start with adoring God. You don't rush into me and tell me, I want my daily bread. No, no, no. Uh, that may be a, a, an emergency case, but generally speaking, in your daily prayer, in your closet prayer, and he talks about closet prayer, not public prayer now, closet prayer, when you pray privately, Get your mind in the right frame because you're approaching me, you know, and uh, based on who you think I am and see I, me to be, then your petition will flow out of that. If I take and put into practice all of these things that you've been speaking about over the last few weeks in relation to prayer and what you've been talking about this <coughs> evening from Nehemiah 9 and Daniel chapter 9, can you guarantee that God's going to answer my prayers like I want him to? Well, uh, again, uh, we are talking about the conditions of prayer shortly. I mean, there are certain things that God laid down as preconditions. If you want answers, this is how you get answers. But if you're praying in the will of God, any time a person is praying in the will of God, the answer is going to come. And that's why I say that you pray to the Father in the name of the Son with the assistance of the Holy Spirit. And Romans chapter 8 said, the Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God. So once we are praying in the will of God, there will always be an answer because God will always fulfill His will. So we got to make sure that when we're coming into prayer that we ask ourselves is this within the framework of God's will and that's where you ask the Spirit of God help me to prayer and direct my prayer in the will of God that's what the entire Trinity is involved in this whole thing sometimes we just go to God the Father we just go in the name of the Son but we have forgotten the ministry of the Holy Spirit which we, we need his help and aid in making sure that our prayers are in line with God's will. Remember in Romans, he said he, he, he prays with us with groanings and utterings that cannot be mentioned. According to what? According to the will of God. So that's where we ask for his assistance to make sure that we're praying in the will of God. But once we pray in the will of God, it will be answered. But remember, Nathan, as well, all prayers are answered, right? Yeah. Remember that? Yes, no. Wait a while, or my grace is sufficient. So there's your answer. <laughs> 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and I am glad that you are. It is Tuesday evening. The time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.37. We have about 20 minutes left in this particular episode of That's Truth. It's a live, interactive call-in program. The phone line is open and available if you would like to call and ask your question live on the air. The number to call is 268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 268-782-1454. 
You can also go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and right there on your device, you can listen to the program, watch behind the scenes, and comment your questions or suggested topics that you would like us to discuss on a future episode of That's Truth right there in the comment section on your device, and it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy. Pastor, um, you were discussing last week about the hindrances to prayer, and then you wrapped up last week's episode with some prerequisites. Can you pick Mm -hmm. up with that topic? Yeah, I think we're talking about um, preconditions for uh, answered prayer. Number one, we talk about sincerity, and Mm -hmm. I think everybody knows that we must... The Father seeks us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And we, we gave you some verses that emphasize that element of, of, of sincerity. The second one we talked about was reverence, uh, where we're told that don't rush into God's presence and just speak without considering who you're speaking to. We thought, saw that in the book of Ecclesiastes. And then our Lord pointed out, you know, when you're praying, you're praying to our Father which art in heaven. Always remember the a distance between you and God. You, he's not down to your level. He's not your pal as such. He's your Father. And uh, all of us know that we have a distinct respect for our Father, even though we're friends. And then, of course, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about serving God with reverence. The third thing, uh, prerequisite, would be humility. Um, look at Psalms Psalm 9, 10, verse 17. Uh, give me just a second to get myself oriented. Psalm 10, 17. Psalm 10, 17 says... Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their heart. Thou wilt cause thine ear to hear. There is talking about the, 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 the God specifically uh, hears the prayer of the humble. Uh, the other one is Second Chronicles 7.14. I think we're all familiar with that. Second Chronicles 7.14 7, 14 uh-huh. says... If my people... If my people which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn away from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. Notice the the, the first priority is that you humble yourself. Humility is vitally important if we're going to have God answer prayer. Remember in Matthew, Luke chapter 18, you've got the contrast between the publican and the Pharisee. Mm-hmm. The Pharisee goes up and he's so proud, like a big peacock. He just spread his feathers and he's praising and thanking God that he's not like this person. He does this, and he never wants humble himself. The, the 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 publican, on the other hand, has nothing to appeal to God to. He strikes his his chest and beats his chest and just simply said, "God, be merciful to me, a sinner." And that the Lord said that this man went down to his house justified. There's an example of the contrast between humility and pride, and the one who prayed and prayed and had a prideful attitude, uh, he was rejected. His prayer was not answered, quite frankly. So humility is another factor. How do you factor that? How do you factor humility with we should be confident and bold in our prayers and our requests and naming it and claiming it? Well, we must come boldly before the throne of grace to find help in time of need. There's nothing because we, we are bold because we are God's sons. But we all know that there can be a, a there's a boldness, but there's a boldness doesn't have to be that we're proud, 
right? We can be humbly bold before God, knowing that our answer to, to our prayers dependent on God and not upon ourselves. So there must be this element of humility. We can't do this. We need your help, but with your help. So that element is there. So not, there's not a contrast between boldness. Our boldness comes from the fact that we are God's children. And because we're God's children, we have access to Him. That's where the boldness comes. But it doesn't mean that we come before God with, with pride, we come with a humble adoration to Him and, and a request of Him, not demanding of Him. And and that's uh, this is something I, I I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, they name it and claim it. People, you know, just think that they can command God and tell God what to do. But again, we must always remember that uh, again that He's in heaven and we're in earth. There's always that dis- that distinct difference between us, and we must always have reverence and humility when we approach God. We might be very sure that this is God's will, and we can pray with boldness. There are times when we can, because I, we know this is God's will. I was reading a, a book, uh, uh, the book on prayer by E. M. Bongs. Yeah. Uh, there's a, 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 a has all of its books compiled. I've got it's it. Pretty thick. It's very thick. I was reading it today, and I was reading uh, a section there where uh, George Mueller was returning back from overseas on a on a boat. But his wife was very ill, and she needed a particular type of cheer. And he had brought the matter before the Lord that, you know, Lord, my wife needs this. And George Mueller was convinced that he would have the cheer for his wife. However, like a few hours before the boat was to leave, the cheer hadn't arrived as yet. And a friend of his said, you know what, Um, let us go and buy a cheer. And George Miller said, "Do not buy a cheer. The cheer is coming." And I think I don't know if it was twenty minutes before, or thirty minutes before the boat was came. Uh, the, the guy said he was amazed that he thought he was being helpful by saying to him, "Look, let me buy a chair." He said, "The Lord has told me. I've prayed about this matter. The Lord has told me the chair is going to be here. I'm, the boat is not leaving until this chair arrives." Wow. And I, I was reading that with a, uh, this man had such a intimate. A short uh, uh, prayer life with God and was so confident in God. The, the man said he was just humbled, completely humbled. He didn't know what kind of a man he was dealing with. That this man had so much confidence. And sure enough, the chair arrived and uh, on time before the boat left. Right? That gives you an idea of that. That is boldness. But you would never get the impression that he did it with a proud, arrogant, uh, prideful attitude. No, it was a humble confidence in God, and that's what we're talking about here. Time across the Eastern Caribbean <coughs> is 844. So we should have sincerity and we should have reverence, reverence and humility. And then the third, fourth one would be uh, submission to God's will. Uh, 1 John 5.14. 1 John 5.14. And verse 14 reads as follows. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. That is very, very clear. That as long as we are praying within the will of God, we have the confidence that He will hear. You remember our Lord, uh, let this cup f- pass away from me. Nonetheless, not my will, but thine be will. And then also, uh, again, in, 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 in Gethsemane, uh, he, he prayed that prayer. This is not the first time. Uh, look at um, Matthew 6.10. Matthew 6, 10. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now that is the first part of the believer's prayer, the pattern, that when we are coming to God in prayer, we come with the mind that we are praying and we want God's will to be done in our lives and we want God to be done, will done as it is in heaven with readiness. It's done on earth with readiness as well. So that's the first thing when we come into God in prayer. That's the pattern that we must be coming, that we don't want our selfish desires. If this is not God's will, I'm willing to release it. I'm willing to say no to it. Until we have that kind, if we have that kind of disposition that we really want, truly want God's will, that is one of the preconditions uh, for God's will to be done. Pastor, how would you respond to the individual listening who says that promise in First John five fourteen that says, "And this is the confidence that we have in Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us." That's a a weak promise because it's got a very vague disclaimer there that can just be used as an excuse. Yeah. Uh, well, how do you that, that might be real, but again, there are some things in the Bible that are very clearly His will. As a matter of fact, I, I did a sermon recently on that matter where I think about seven different things in the Bible said, this is the will of God, this is the will of God. So we know one thing. There are times when we may not know God's will for a job, mm-hmm. but there are distinct things in the Bible that tells us it is God's will. For example, is God's will that you abstain from fornication? So you shouldn't ask the question, Lord, should I go ahead and sleep with this guy? Or should I go ahead and sleep with this woman? Whatever it is. The answer to that question, that's not even a prayer that should even be requested. Why? Because it's not God's will. It's God's will that you remain pure, that you be sanctified. So you don't have to ask, Lord, here I am, I'm I'm 40 years old, I'm 39 years old. Uh, I don't have children as yet. I might die an old maid, whatever it is. Uh, Lord, should I just go ahead and have a child? You don't have to pray that kind of a thing because that's out of God's will. So, and that can be very very, very short. So, but the other things that, for example, should I migrate from Antigua to go to America? Okay. That is something that you have to settle in your mind. Uh, is this God's will? And again, uh, that requires prayer. You just say, well, the opportunity has come, therefore I go. But also look at the situation and what are the repercussions of that. My, my observation is that I've met a lot of Caribbean people who have not written, not in the States necessarily, but who have gone to England, for example, and spent maybe 10, 15, 20 years, come back, and they have been completely washed out of religion. They have no faith in God any longer. They're pretty much atheistic. They don't have no morals any longer, no biblical principles. And I, I realize that's a tremendous danger of leaving the Caribbean and going up in that, those, that, those big countries and losing your faith. So one has to look at that. My, well, my child, do I send him to overseas to study or do I let him stay in the Caribbean and study where I can keep an eye on him? Those are issues that parents have to take very, very, very seriously because you can go into college in the States and by the time your child comes back, he went with faith and he, he comes back with absolute unbelief. Right? So that's a question you've got to be very, very clear about. And then in that area... Peace has to be one of the, the, the genuine things about that. But also the circumstances. Is the door being open? Is the door being closed? Uh, do I feel uh, uneasy about it? Those are issues. We should not go against the element of peace. I think peace is the key thing to finally settling it. This is God's will or not. If you're troubled about it, uh, you should never engage in it until you have the peace of God that passes all understanding. So that would be one of the, the green lights that would help you know, well, I've got peace, real peace about this matter. There's, that would be a subject we could look at, how do you find God's will in the future, yeah. maybe something to look at. The other thing, Nathan, is uh, obedience. Uh, look at First John 3.22. First John 3.22. 3, 
says, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. So clearly it's a matter of obedience. Uh, uh, look, there may be somebody listening on the uh, radio tonight, and you haven't had your prayers answered uh, for, for years. You've given up on prayer. But my, my, my suggestion to you is before you give up on God, ask yourself, have I met the conditions for God to answer my prayer? See, Have I been living an obedient life to Him? Have I been submissive to His will? Have I been reverence, reverence, reverence in Him? Have I displayed humility and sincerity? So don't, uh, don't just turn your back on God because your prayers are not answered and because you're praying, but there are conditions of that matter. One of those things is obedience. Have you been living an obedient life? You know the Bible, you know the Scriptures, you know the principles of God's Word, but have you been living a life that is in harmony with Scripture? Have you been living a life of rebellion and being an own wish type of person and uh, living a life of autonomy? So that would be a hindrance to your prayer. The, uh, another one, Nathan, number five, is First uh, uh, John 15, 7 and, and 10. John 15, 7 and 10. As I'm turning there, I'm just thinking so many of these prerequisites alienate uh, people before they even get to listing what their prayer is. <laughs> yeah, but again, that, that's where a lot of people give up on prayer because it's not answered. Yeah. But again, if God has set the conditions of prayer, the answered prayer, and you're not attempting to meet those conditions, you can't be very serious. I mean, you, you, you just can't. <laughs> God is not our bellboy, let me put it that way, okay? God is our God, our Lord, and our Savior. And we approach Him according to the prerequisites that He's laid down. John fifteen seven to ten, yeah, uh, seven and ten, seven and ten. Uh, fifteen seven says, "If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you." And skipping down to verse ten, "If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love." Yeah. If, if you abide in me, you can ask what you will and be given to you. The, the word there, uh, abide, is to remain, and the, the idea is, is, is very is in contact, quite frankly. Just like the, the vine and the branches attached to the vine, that's the same word that is used in John chapter 15. So he's saying to you, if you really want your prayers answered, you have to have a close relationship with me. Remain in contact with me and, and live a, a life dependent upon me, looking to me. Uh, and again, that explains the reason why a lot of people's prayers are not answered because we, we, you know, we're looking at our own resources, our own, our own mind, our own abilities, and we don't have that close connection with Him. But if we really want to have prayers answered regularly and frequently, it's important to have that very, very close contact. And here's it, Nathan: if you do have that close intimacy with Him, it's not unlikely that you'll be asking for things that you know He's displeased with. So it almost conditions your mind as you have that relation that you want to maintain that relation with him. So you're always praying, will, will this please him? You know, uh, is this within his will? So that conditions your, your prayer. And when God sees that, of course, he's more inclined to respond to you than, than normal. So uh, abiding in Christ is another one. And then one that we're all familiar with, um, look at uh, Matthew, Mark eleven twenty five. Mark eleven twenty five says, And when ye stand praying, forgive, if ye have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now again, this is a specific area of prayer. We don't, you want forgiveness. Uh, 
So he's not saying you can't pray, but he's, he's nailing this down that uh, when you go to pray and you want forgiveness, remember this, you have to learn to forgive. So forgiveness is an important part of, of prayer as well. If you want your prayer answered, especially in the realm where you want to have the peace that you're forgiven, you're pardoned, you, you, whatever it is, you need to have this element of forgiveness, a forgiving heart, forgiving spirit. So that's another precondition. And then um, let's look at Matthew... Uh, 21 verse 21 and 22 Matthew 21 verses 21 and 22 Jesus answered and saith unto them verily I say unto you if ye have faith and doubt not ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree but also if ye shall say unto this mountain be thou removed and thou be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. Verse 22, And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing, ye shall receive. Again, the element of faith. And I think that we all know that according to the book of Hebrews, without faith it is impossible to please God. He that comes to God must believe that he is, and it is a reward of them that diligently seek him. And here you can't divorce answered prayer without that element of faith. And uh, so that is another uh, condition. If we're going to have our prayers answered, we must come to God uh, with faith, believing that he's going to answer that, that prayer. He honors faith, uh, and that's one thing, another thing. Now, we don't have uh, anything else you want to mention about the prerequisites? No, I don't, I don't want to. Uh, there are some others, but I think those are the, the key ones. Okay. Uh, and we have about three and a half minutes left in the program in this episode. And the next direction I was going to question you in is going down the direction of the Lord's Prayer. I think it's impossible for us to cover the topic of yeah. prayer without addressing it. Do you have any maybe just uh, opening thoughts or comments that you'd like to use to whet our appetite to make sure we tune in next week? Yeah. Well, well, quickly, uh, the first thing I would say that uh, in, in setting out this pattern of prayer for the believer, uh, it's like a model prayer of, we, of, of what we hold in a mental fr- frame of mind when we're praying before God. But prior to this, uh, I think it's important to see uh, what our Lord taught us about prayer. If we are going to, before we give the pattern, he pointed out three things that he condemned in the prayer of what he called the hypocrites. Number one, their insincerity. He said their prayer to be seen of men. Okay, so this is about uh, trying to impress people, and people got to be very careful when they're even praying in public that they don't use flowery, ornate words in order people say, "Wow, that guy can really, really pray." The, our Lord condemns that because you're praying not to God, but you're praying to impress people. He 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 condemns that. The second thing that he uh, condemns. Do you think you can do that without realizing it? Yeah, I think you can do it without realizing it, but I think. If you would focus more on God mm. rather than people listening, I think that element would disappear. Uh, and it is possible that you can be praying to God and you get up into that elevated level of prayer. And people might think, you, but uh, again, motive is there. Yeah. But I think the important thing here is to, when you're praying, focus on God. Don't worry about what people think you're praying. Your prayer focus on God. I think that would solve a lot of your problems. The other thing is that um, he said that uh, they did it because they wanted attention. In verse number six, uh, they stand in the streets to be seen of men, basically, and they use a lot of pious prayers. And then he talked about vain repetition, empty words, platitudes, empty cliches. 
what you may call verbosity, long, sweet words, but no substance whatsoever. And some people get into the habit, Nathan, I've picked this up sometimes, that even when they're praying, uh, very often, rather than addressing the Father, they're addressing the Son. Yeah. Or this, and I, I'm, saying, I'm saying to myself, but, and sometimes even when they're praying, they're praying as though the Father was crucified. I don't know if you ever picked that up in prayer. And I'm saying to myself, but these people are not thinking what they're praying. That happens yeah. sometimes at communion. Yeah. I picked that up many times at communion. And I'm saying to myself, but where is this person in his, his prayer? He's praying, but he's not really thinking what he's saying. The Father was not crucified. The Son was crucified. You know, yeah. Lord, we thank, Father, we thank you for dying for us. No, <laughs> I listen to that sometimes. And I, I, I must say I'm very conscious of it, and uh, and uh, people need to be very much aware. That's where, again, it's a frame of mind. But vain repetition uh, is what he condemns. So having dealt with those three things that he saw among the Pharisees, basically, and he condemned those things. And he, By the way, he called all that hypocrisy. The biblical word for hypocrisy is actor. So these are people who are playing a part and acting before people to be seen of people. And the Lord is saying, no, when you pray, you go into the closet. Don't focus on other people and what people are thinking about you. You focus on me, basically. And that's why there's a difference between public prayer and private prayer. But in Matthew chapter 6, he's dealing with private prayer, going into the closet when you go into prayer. Because you ask the question about impromptu prayer. Do you have to always have this frame of mind? No, there may be a legitimate time where somebody has just died, had an accident, maybe prayer for safety, whatever it is. But when we go into the closet now, we have a private time with prayer. The Lord wants us to have this, this frame of mind that we have in the, the model prayer. Pastor, early on in the program, you were talking about how uh, if a person is on their deathbed, we are not going to immerse them in order to baptize them uh, through that model. But is there any biblical grounds in the last 20 seconds, any biblical grounds for last rites as we know them in the religious realm that we often hear people talk about? We don't have any biblical example of that. We have no command in the scriptures to do that. That is just a Catholic myth that has been given, and it is one of their sacraments. And remember that grace comes through the sacraments. It doesn't come through the living Christ. It's nothing that the believers should get engaged in. Thank you for listening, and be sure you join us next week. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.